Well, greetings from Alpharetta, Georgia. We are so excited that your church is joining many others in launching Be Rich, our annual generosity campaign. Now, over the next few weeks, we'll be part of unleashing our largest tidal wave of generosity ever. And when I say we, let me tell you who we are. We are 61 churches in four countries, 16 states. And are you ready for this? That's over 112,000 people, over 28,000 children and students, over 84,000 adults. And we will be partnering with over 300 nonprofits. That is amazing. This is the 11th year of Be Rich, and next to Easter, it is my favorite Sunday of the year. If you've been part of Be Rich before, you know what to expect. You know how fun and rewarding it can be to give, serve, and love our communities together. And if you've been part of Be Rich before, I want to tell you just how generous you've been over these past 10 years. You have served over 270,000 hours, and you've given over $29 million to our communities. If you're new, let me explain why we call it Be Rich. 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to his protege, Timothy, and in that letter, he gives us this instruction. Here's what he wrote. He said, command those who are rich in this present world to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. Notice he said, those who are rich in this present world. Believe it or not, that's us. That's you. That's me. Now, we don't think that's us, We don't think that's us because we don't think we're rich. And we don't think we're rich because we don't feel rich. And we don't feel rich because we compare ourselves to folks who are richer. But if you drove your car to church today, you're rich. Many of us have the added hassle of backing our car out of our little car house, being careful not to scratch our other car. If you plan ahead financially, you're rich. If you can think about getting ahead financially, you're rich. If you have more than you need, you're rich. Now, From time to time, we all face financial challenges, setbacks, job loss, and we certainly don't feel rich in those seasons. But imagine, imagine showing up in a Syrian refugee camp, sitting with a translator and explaining your financial problems to a family that's been stuck there for two years with nothing but what they could carry with them when they fled from their home. Consumer debt, 401k problems, investment losses, delayed retirement, In that context, it looks a little different, doesn't it? Now, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm just trying to help you see that by international standards, we are in fact rich, whether we ever feel like it or not. The Be Rich campaign provides us with the opportunity to do what the Apostle Paul instructed first century Christians to do, to be rich in good deeds and to share. We believe the local church should be known for its generosity and its compassion, for being rich toward others. And our hope is that people who don't share our beliefs would find themselves thinking, I don't believe what they believe, but those are the finest people in our community. Those are the most compassionate people in our community. Those are the most generous people in our community. Our community is a better place because of the local church. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've experienced God's generosity towards you, haven't you? Be rich is just the response to that generosity. In fact, extravagant generosity toward others is the appropriate response to God's extravagant generosity toward us. And that's what Be Rich is all about. It's a wave of generosity from us to our communities that points back to God's generosity toward us. Our aim every year is for everyone to participate. 
all of us, 100%. And your church staff is prepared for just that. They've been out scouting great projects with great nonprofit partners. And even though this is a national campaign, 100% of what's raised in your church will fund projects in your community. In other words, we're asking 100% of you to give and we're giving 100% of it away. So thanks again for joining this movement of extravagant generosity. Thank you in advance for being rich. I hope and I pray that you experience the satisfaction of doing for others as God has done for you. Now in just a moment to help us do just that, you'll see a segment of a message I gave to all of our churches in the Atlanta area. After that, someone from your church will explain exactly what this means for your church and for your community. Check this out. Do you know what made Jesus mad? Do you know what made Jesus angry? In fact, did you even know Jesus got mad or Jesus got angry? Did you even, can you even picture it? Because we all have a picture of Jesus and we're all wrong, you know? He's either too tall, too short, too light, too dark. We're all, we're all wrong, you know? But can you even imagine Jesus getting angry? But we're going to discover today Jesus got angry. And it's different than the way we get angry because we get angry over really stupid things, right? Or really dumb things. Remember last month when you were just so angry? No, it was so dumb. You have already forgotten what you were so angry about. In fact, Sandra's here. One of her, her, her mom has a habit when she gets mad at her dad. Can I share this? I guess I already started. Yeah. <laughs> and Jackie, if you're watching, you know, you're my favorite mother-in-law. You know that. Okay, honey, I, you do. Anyway, so her, her mom will get mad at her dad. And she'll, she knows that if she doesn't do something to remind her of what, that she's supposed to be angry, by the time he gets home, she'll forget to be angry. Because that's how our anger is sometimes. So she puts her ring on a different hand or something. So she'll remember to be, be angry. But most of our anger is really about that silly, okay? And here's the thing. We, we get angry. The reason we get angry is because we don't get our way. And I learned this even as a parent because I would find myself really angry with my kids. And then I would go kind of look in the mirror and kind of settle down. And I would realize I'm not just angry because they're not doing what they're supposed to do, even though they should do what they're supposed to do because what I've asked them to do is good for them. I'm mostly angry that they just won't do what I want them to do. Even though they should do what I want them to do because it's good for them, I'm mostly angry because they won't do what I've asked them to do. Do you get that? Yeah, it's, it's true. It's just that all of most of us, 90% of our anger, 99% of our anger really comes down to we just aren't getting our way. In other words, when, some, when, when someone gets in the way of us having our way, you better get out of the way. But Jesus, Jesus got angry, but Jesus never got angry because he couldn't get his way. Jesus got angry because, well, let's just discover that together. Four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four accounts of the life of Jesus written around, you know, before 70 AD, we believe they're eventually gathered up, become part of our New Testament. It's so exciting. Matthew, Mark, Mark is the second gospel writer. We think Mark was Greek and got his information from the apostle Peter. And Mark in chapter three tells us this, and we jump into the story. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. And shriveled hand, he had, we would call it hand atrophy, that he had probably had an accident. We don't know. The bones were weren't set correctly. The muscles began to atrophy and eventually he couldn't use his hand. This is visible and this is embarrassing. And there's drama in this story because in the synagogue, whenever Jesus showed up for the synagogue, people would have a seat that usually hand Jesus a scroll because he was always getting himself in trouble. And he was a way better teacher than anybody else because he taught with authority. People leaned in. He could share the same passage they'd heard a hundred times and be like, wow, we never heard that before. We never saw it that way before. And apparently this man with hand atrophy is in the crowd and somehow, some way we don't know, he makes his hand visible to Jesus in a silent plea for help. He either pulls up his sleeve or he exposes his hand. And it was his quiet way of saying, would you help me? 
Some of them, some of them, and we're going to come back to them in just a minute. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal this man on the Sabbath. And suddenly we are introduced to a version of a religion, a version of religion that attempts to prioritize God above what God prioritizes. A version of religion that values God more than what God values, which is actually impossible to do, but every single one of us, as we're going to discover, has tried to do that. More on that later. The story continues. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone, which of course was the last thing he wanted to do. Everyone's seated. He's got something he's very embarrassed about. He has somehow exposed it to Jesus, hoping that maybe Jesus will meet him after church, you know, in the back, in the lobby, in the green room, behind the building and do a miracle. And Jesus says in front of everybody, stand up. And while he's standing there trying to hide his hand or perhaps embarrassed, Then Jesus turns to the them in the story. And Jesus asked them, you ready for this? Them who were more devoted to God than what God was devoted to. Them who were trying to be more devoted to God than devoted to the people that God loved. Which is unlawful? He asked them a multiple choice question. Which is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now they had a very, very tightly wound definition of the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, you weren't supposed to be able to do any work and they had defined exactly what work was. And listen, let me tell you how they defined it. Work was pretty much everything everybody else did, but not them. Because that's how religion goes, right? I mean, think how angry you get at other people's sin. And then you look in the mirror and go, well, I couldn't help it, right? I mean, I, I, just, you know, I just had a bad day. She's just a bad person. You know, I, I just had a, a tough morning. You know, he, she, just, she just has problems. She, she needs to see counselor, right? So, so she, he says, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To do good or to do evil? Now, everybody knew the answer to this question. Obviously, you couldn't do evil on the Sabbath. You shouldn't do evil anytime. Obviously, the answer to the question is you do good or you do evil. But these are smart religious people and they're educated people. And they know that Jesus is trying to trick them and trap them. And they're in the synagogue and all eyes are on them. But Jesus owed them this because everywhere Jesus went, they tried to trick and trap Jesus. In fact, one of the most fascinating themes in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is to read the accounts of where the Pharisees and religious leaders are trying to trick and trap Jesus. So finally, Jesus has an audience that's like, hey, let me turn this around on you. Let me try this out for you. Which is, more, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? Easy question. Everybody, even the children in the group, knew the answer to that question. And then Jesus smiles. And before they can answer, he says, to save a life or to kill. Now, this was, we don't, we can't understand the drama around this, but essentially here was the problem with this for the religious people who were trying to trap Jesus. Every single one of those religious men in the room at some point in his or his life had actually probably saved an animal on the Sabbath. Because when an animal was injured on the Sabbath, an animal went off the side of the road or the harness broke or an animal was injured, every single one of them on the Sabbath would save an animal. They would certainly save their children. They would certainly save their wives. They would certainly save people. And they didn't count that as work. Technically, that was like an out. I mean, it's the Sabbath. I'm not supposed to work on the Sabbath. But surely I can save my oxen or my donkey or a sheep. Surely, And they'd all done this. So Jesus grins because they're going to see if he's going to work on the Sabbath. And he says, is it okay to do good on the Sabbath? I know it's not good to do evil. Can I save a life or kill on the Sabbath? And here's his real question. And this is huge. And if, if, you're, if you had a bad church experience somewhere in the past, maybe this is your first time back in church, this, this kind of goes right to the heart of perhaps what you experienced in the church that you left. And maybe it's the reason you didn't go back to church. 
The question behind this question is, is the law of God for the benefit of God? Is the law of God for the benefit of God? Is the law of God for the benefit of God? Or is the law of God for the benefit of those God loves? Is the law of God for the benefit of God? We kept the Sabbath. Are you happy with us? Are you better off now that we kept the Sabbath? Or was the Sabbath actually given for the benefit of people? And in another occasion, in another incident, in another conversation, Jesus actually makes that statement. God didn't create the Sabbath for himself, and he didn't create people for the Sabbath. That's like going out, you know, and, and, and you know, people's parents saying, you know what, we need, we need to have children so there'll be somebody to clean up and pick up the toys. I mean, that's not how it works. You don't have children, so there'll be somebody to pick up the toys. And God didn't create the Sabbath, I mean, to create people just so there would be someone to keep the Sabbath. So the question is, is the law of God for the benefit of God, or is the law of God for the benefit of those God loves? Now, Everybody, even if you're not a religious person or you're a brand new Christian or you've, you know, you've been gone for a long time or you may be a different faith, everybody already knows the answer to this question, right? I mean, if I were to just, just to walk up to you and say, I got a quick kind of religion Bible question. Is it okay to do good on Sunday or evil on Sunday? If we just call that our Sabbath for just a minute, even though, of course, they worshiped on Saturday. Is it okay to save a life? You know, I mean, everybody knows the answer to this question. They knew the answer to the question, but if they answered the question correctly, they gave in to where Jesus was going and they can't let Jesus win. So they remained, this is amazing, silent. Like, what? Okay, wait a minute. You guys are in charge of all the religion. You're in charge of the temple. You're the holiest, goodest, doing good people in the whole community. Your, your full-time job is to do good, to be ceremonially clean. You know the answer to this question, but they can't let Jesus be right. Now, if you're a Christian, I just want to say something to you. If you're not a Christian, you can ignore this. This isn't for you. But for Christians, this is, this is a really big deal, okay? And this is just sort of a sidebar thing. It could be a message all on its own. But when our application, this is important, when our application of Scripture conflicts with the intent of the author of Scripture, we have the wrong application. When our application, the way we do Christianity, the way we do the Christian life, when our way, our view, when our interpretation, you can put the word interpretation there instead of application, when our interpretation of Scripture conflicts with the intent of the author of Scripture, we have the wrong interpretation. And suddenly, here's a group of religious leaders who are doing their best to be good people, good religious people, and they bump up against the intent of why God gave the Sabbath to begin with. And that kind of takes us deeper into the story because it leaves us with the question, so then how does Jesus react? How does Jesus respond? Specifically, how does Jesus react when someone attempts to use the law of God to hurt the people God loves? How does Jesus react when someone uses the, the law that God gave to hurt the people that God loves? He looked around, and here it is, at them in anger. Angry Jesus. We meet angry Jesus. In fact, the word anger, this is a soft interpretation. The Greek term is actually translated other places in the New Testament as wrath. Remember when you grew up in church, maybe you grew up in a church that, where they talked about the wrath of God. This is the wrath of Jesus. You want to know what makes Jesus mad? You'd say, sin. No, yes, no, yes, no. You want to know what really made Jesus mad? Which I'm guessing is what makes God mad. Because remember Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what makes God mad? You just watch me and see what makes me mad. He looks at them in anger, indignation, wrath, and deeply, deeply, deeply distressed. There's so much emotion in this story. And deeply distressed at their stubborn 
hearts. They knew the answer to the question. They just wouldn't say it. They knew what they needed to do. They just wouldn't do it. They knew that he was right. They just couldn't let him be right. And he was grieved at their pride, their unwillingness. They knew. It's not that they didn't know. Their unwillingness to acknowledge what they knew, to acknowledge what they saw, to acknowledge what they felt. And then he said to the man, imagine this moment. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. Okay, and the guy's going, okay. First, this was supposed to be between me and you. It's like, okay. <laughs> then you made me stand up in front of everybody. Jesus, there's only two people standing in the room. You're standing and I'm standing. And I had to stand through that whole little thing that you did right there. And now you want me to expose to this whole group the thing that makes me ashamed. The reason I can't work. The reason my family perhaps is starving. Perhaps the reason I'm on the verge of losing my children to a debtor. The reason my whole life has been corrupted, the one thing I don't want anyone to really know about me, but they all already know because it's a small community. You want me to stretch out my hand like, let's do show and tell. Here's the thing I'm most embarrassed about. Why don't I just hold it out in front of everybody? (laughs) But apparently he had seen Jesus in action. That's why he knew he could expose himself, his heart, the thing that he didn't want anyone to know about him to Jesus. And he stretched it out. He stretched out his hand and it was completely restored. Now, at this point in the story, you'd think everybody in the room's like, you know, at least a golf clap, at least something. You know, I mean, this is amazing. They are sitting still, a standing ovation. They're already sitting. I mean, this is the perfect time for a standing ovation. And Mark, who probably got his information from Peter, tells us then, like the very next thing, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians on how they might kill Jesus. Now, here's why, because we read this and we go, in fact, this is what's interesting. Even if you're here or you're watching and you're not a religious person, you're not a Christian, now this is really interesting and, and don't turn off or tune me out or you know do online shopping. This is like super, super important right here. When you hear a story like this and you read a story like this, this is so important, especially if you grew up in church and you walked away. When you hear and you read a story like this, isn't it true you were on Jesus' side? Isn't it true that in this story, Jesus is the hero? And isn't it true that if you were in this audience and you heard this story, you would say, yay, Jesus, boo, religious people. Isn't it true that even if you don't believe Jesus is the son of God, suddenly in the heat of and in the emotion of this moment, there's something compelling and attractive about Jesus. Before you go too far and before you get all excited, here's something you need to know. Jesus' version of religion is terribly, terribly uncomfortable. That's what they were bumping into here. Jesus' version of religion is terribly uncomfortable, not just for first century people, for all century people, because Jesus' version of religion takes away our control. And here's what I mean by that. See, we've not met, we've not had a conversation over coffee, but I know there's something in you because it's in me, it's in all of us. We all, to some extent, want a religion, a religion that allows us to be in control. Here's what I mean by that. We want a religion that frees us to treat people any way we want to treat people and then have some kind of mystical, magical, imaginary conversation with God and get forgiveness from God and God forgets everything we did and forgets our sin and we just go on with our life. That's what we want. We want a version of religion that allows us to do as we please and then engage with God in some some sort of, you know, me and God process. And then I'm forgiven and I move on. That's what we all want. We want a faith. I'll put it up here for you. We want a faith that makes us accountable to how we treat God, not others. So don't miss this, okay? That is not Christianity. That is paganism. 
That was first century temple. That was a formula. That's an equation. That's a pin number. I got God figured out. All I have to do is pray the right amount of prayers, read the right amount of scripture, go to church the right amount of times, and me and God are cool. You do not find that coming from the lips of Jesus. In fact, it's pagan religion. All pagan religions kind of went like this. There were the gods, plural. They did not care for us. We had to do everything we could to make them pleased with us or our crops wouldn't grow and our babies wouldn't be born healthy. We wouldn't win battles. We wouldn't win wars and we wouldn't choose the right person as emperor. So ancient people did everything they could to bribe and get the attention of the gods to get the favor of the gods because the assumption was this. The gods don't care about us. Now, if you grow up in a religious culture where the gods don't care about you, you don't have to care about anybody else. There was no religious morality. No one felt guilty toward the gods for anything they did. The gods didn't care. I don't have to care. I just got to keep the gods happy. And this insidious kind of religion has crept into every form of religion ever since. It's pagan religion. It's why when those of us who are Christians, and if you're not a Christian and you want to be critical of us, I'm about to give you some ammunition, so you may want to write this down. When those of us who are Christians live our lives in such a way that we think we can mistreat people and be right with God. We are fooling ourselves. Jesus taught the very opposite. It's what made Jesus angry. When people used, when people used the law of God to discount, to discount people made in the image of God, when people use the law of God to discount people made in the image of God, Jesus was quick to remind them, you are on the wrong side of God. Do not kid yourself. You see, Jesus didn't get angry when he didn't get his way. Jesus got angry when religion got in the way of what was important to him. What kind of religion? What kind of religion got on Jesus' nerves? What kind of religion made Jesus angry? Religion that valued, try to value God, but ignored what God values. Religion that tried to value what God values, but tried to value God without valuing what God values. Religion that honors God, but dishonors those who God honors. Religion that honors God, but dishonors what God honors. We have all tried this. And religion that prioritizes God. I'm going to prioritize God. God is the most important thing in my life. I'm going to prioritize God, but somehow tries to overlook what God prioritizes. That's when we discover angry Jesus. Isn't it true that if you had a bad church experience, you grew up in church and got bumped out of church, isn't it true there was some of this blended in? You saw very, very religious people mistreat other people and somehow they felt like their religion, their religion was intact and there was something in you going, there is something wrong with that. I've got some great news for you. You may not believe Jesus is the son of God, but Jesus agreed with you in that moment. Because it's like any parent knows, any grandparent knows, any older or younger, any older brother or sister knows. You can tell me how great I am. You can buy all my books. You can sit on the front row and take notes. But if you mistreat one of my children, none of that counts. It doesn't matter how nice I am to you. It doesn't matter how much I honor you. It doesn't matter how much I glorify you. If I mistreat someone you love, you will have nothing to do with me until I make it up with the person related to you that you love. I cannot value you without valuing what you value. I cannot prioritize you without prioritizing what you prioritize. And the same is true with your heavenly father and with mine. And Jesus, who taught that, who modeled it throughout all the gospel, says to you, says to me, says to his first century followers, 
and sends a message through his first century followers and apostles throughout all generations and throughout all of time. He says to all of us, here's what I want you to do. I want you to follow me. I want you to do for others what you saw me do for others, but I want you to take it a step further. I want you to do for others what ultimately I did for you. I want you to do for those who can't and won't do for you. That's my kind of religion. After all, come on, it's what I did for you. Now, you know the rest of the story. The religious leaders were successful. They eventually had Jesus arrested and tried and crucified. But they had no idea, and how could they have? They had no idea that by arresting and crucifying Jesus, that, they, that, that his death and his crucifixion would ultimately, be, would ultimately be the ultimate example of the very thing they hated most about him. His annoying habit of giving his life away. And sometime later, because we know that many Pharisees came to be followers of Jesus after the resurrection, how they must have looked back and wondered, how did we miss it? What could have been any clearer than that? So the reason we do Be Rich, the reason we collectively as a group of churches in the Atlanta area and now all around the first all around the Southeast and now all around the country and even some churches in other parts of the world, the reason we do this, the reason we do Be Rich is this is how we follow Jesus. It's our way of doing corporately what we've all been called to do individually and what Jesus did habitually. We, this is how we do corporately what we've all been called to do individually and what Jesus did throughout his ministry. This is our annual generosity campaign where we express our love for God. We express our love for God by caring for the people that God loves and expecting nothing, nothing, nothing in return. I love this opportunity. I love this opportunity because what... Paul said to Timothy is so rich that God, that, that we are to do good, that we are to be rich in good deeds and willing to be generous with those around us. Now, I want to tell you a couple of stories about some, some opportunities that came across our path last year. We got the chance last year to talk with an organization called Valiant Hearts. And can I tell you what was really cool? After Be Rich... Valiant Hearts came to us and they said, Scott, I want to take you out to coffee. I've got some questions I want to ask you. I said, sure, let's talk. You know what she said? In the midst of the conversation with, with Trudy and myself, she said, why? What's wrong with you people? And I'm like, what do you mean by that? She said, I have never had a church that has come to us and said, what can I do to help? I've had so many churches that we've had to plead with. We've had to beg for. We've had to say, please, can you help us? I've never had a church that knocked on our door and said, hey, we want to help you. What can we do to help? There's something different about, about you. A couple of days ago, I was at one of our Intersect partners, uh, getting the chance to talk with them and just to see what's going on and what they do, why we want to partner with you. And the same thing came across in the conversation. She was making the comment about how there's so many times that she has to go to different organizations and plead with them and say, hey, um, here's what we need. Here's our biggest needs. And she said she just keeps praying and praying that God would provide people to help shoulder the burden that they have. She said, why do you do what you do? Why is it 
that you would step out of your comfort zone and walk into us and say, what can we do to help? It's because at the core, we really believe that being rich, being rich is an expression of our love for God by caring for people that God loves. It is an expression for our love for God because we love God so much. We want to not just express it and say, hey, come, come, come. We want to express it and say, what can we do to help? How can we help out? How can we partner with what you are doing well? How can we be a part of the things you are doing? You see, when we began this church, we began this church with the idea of being a church that is for North Tarrant. You might have heard that before. In fact, we actually have some cool t-shirts that say like for North Tarrant. And we wanted to be a church that if we ever closed the doors of our church, the community would legitimately grieve our closing. We wanted to be a church that was so intertwined with what's happening in and around our area that should we ever decide, you know what, this was a good fun run, but we're done. Let's close the doors so long that people in the community would be would grieve and beg that we would stay put, that we would stay a part of what we're doing. And the reason we want to do that is we want to be a partner with the local, with with what's happening in the community. We want to create a church, but we don't want to create a church that's a competitor towards. We don't want to necessarily try to create competition in um, food banks. And we're going to do the best food bank we can. And we want to create the best clothes closet. And we want to go and do everything we can. And we want to put the other nonprofits out of the business. We want to be a church that genuinely loves people and is no longer committed to trying to be a competitor, but we want to step into our community and legitimately be a partner. We want to step in and say, what can I do to help? And so that's why a couple of months ago, we put together what we call our Intersect team. And they went around and they began vetting partners. They began vetting nonprofits in our area and just saying, hey, what can we do to help? What does this look like? What what goes on? What, What can we as a church partner with and step in and do? And we've identified basically six intersect partners. And just to let you know a little bit of what they do, one of our partners goes right into the middle of the refugee families that are moving into our community on a very regular basis. One of our partners, it, they deal with women at risk, with women who've been, who found themselves in the midst of abusive or drug abusive relationship, and they've tried to get out, and now they've found peace and solace, and they've gotten out, and now they need direction. We've got partners that are fighting hunger in our community. And we've even begun the process of beginning to vet a partner that's actually planting a church just like this overseas. We want to be a church that is genuinely for people. So for the next few weeks, we're going to have different calls to action. We're going to have um, giving and serving and loving. In fact, in, in two weeks, we're going to have an incredible message about what does it look like to love our community. And we're going to encourage you. We're going to challenge you to go and love. Okay, I mean, we're even going to arm you with a cool website where you can just hit go and it's almost like a slot machine and do, 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 make cookies for your neighbor. Do, do, I've got elementary age kids. Do, 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 go have a lemonade stand and donate it all. I mean, it's we're trying to make it as easy as we can for you to step out, to love. Next week, we're going to have a great conversation up here where we're actually bringing one of our, our intersect partners up here and we're going to ask them. We're going to talk to them and we're going to ask, what can we do to help? And we're going to have specific calls to action next week that can champion all of us to go and to serve and to help the local community. But today, today, it's our Give Sunday. Today is the Sunday where where we get the chance to be remarkably generous 
where we get the chance to give and to give and to pour into resources and to pour into these communities and say, here's what we would love to do to help. In fact, we went to these partners and we, we asked them, we said, hey, here's something we'd like. What can we do to help? If we could do anything, now we're not promising anything because the reality is we, we, we don't have anything budgeted for this, but we want to help. What can we do to help? In fact, we asked, this, we asked two basic questions. What can we do that would make a big difference for you? And what can we do that can help you make a big difference? What can we do to help make a big difference for you? What does it look like? I mean, what are you struggling with? If we were to come in and we were to get X amount of dollars, what can we do to help you? But then also, what can we do to help make a big difference for you? To help expand what you're doing, to help you do what you do best. What can we do to help? And here's the cool thing is in just a moment when we encourage you and we challenge you, when I say, please, I want you to give, we are giving every single penny that is given today away. Nothing is being kept. A hundred percent of it is being given away. And here's why we can do that is because we've got so many remarkable, generous people who bought into what we're doing and are giving on a regular basis that every single penny, if you came today prepared to give, and you're thinking, I just want to tithe to the church, want to give. If you came today prepared to give, every penny we take in today is going straight to fund these projects. That is remarkable. In fact, here's what we're going to ask you to do. Uh, just real simple, real easy. Um, in just a minute, we, we didn't really set any goals, right? We, we'd want participation goals. We're not necessarily wanting, you know, X amount of thousands and thousands of dollars. What I would love to see is not just 100% of people, or not just giving 100% away, but 100% of the people in here giving money away. Of you leveraging your resources to make a difference in our community. So what does that look like? What are we asking you to do? Imagine if one person in here were to give $39.95 on their own, right? If one person gave $39.95 on their own, it could help a little bit. But imagine if every single person in here were to give $39.95. The opportunity is significant. When one person gives, there's great opportunity. But when everybody bands together and gives together, imagine the difference that can be made. Now, $39.95, that's kind of cute, right? Like, don't, don't everybody, I mean, you watch the TV ads, you're like, $39.95. I mean, that's a simple, um, that, that might be my Starbucks budget for the month. I don't, I mean... Whatever $39.95 looks for you, it, we want to encourage you. We want to encourage you to think about what can you do to give. And this is just a sample financial goal that we've set. Now, some of you might be able to blow that out of the water, and you might be able to put multiple zeros on the end of it. And that is awesome. Some of you in here, you're sitting in here, you're saying, well, wait a second, Scott. Do you know what I just walked in from? Like, do you know what I'm walking through financially? We don't want to put you in a pickle and make you go into greater consumer debt to help us. But we would like for you to ask, what can you do to help? Because every single penny we get today, we are funneling out. Not a single penny are we keeping. In fact, some of the projects that we're looking at, some of the projects that we're looking at today is when we were talking to I Can Still Shine, which is the, um, the organization that helps battered women in our community. One of the things that they do today is they try to take the women that come into their organization and provide scholarships for them to go into and begin getting a degree and begin finding an opportunity for them to put their feet back on the ground. And we told them we would love to be able to fund your entire scholarships for the next year. We would love to be able just as a church to be able to say, hey, we want to help. 
We want to do everything we can to fight for the education of the ladies that you are constantly fighting for. Another opportunity that's come across our our, uh, radar is the, the refugee services of Fort Worth. They told us one of the greatest needs that they have is when a family lands in the Fort Worth area, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, they immediately want to put them into an apartment complex. And many times it takes one to two months for them to land on their feet and to actually be able to fully fund and support their apartment on their own. And I told him, I said, it would be great if we could, not just one family, but if we could sponsor two or three or four families fresh in the States where we get the chance to say, hey, we want to pay for your first two months rent and we want to provide you a cell phone so that you can figure out how you can get a job and how you can begin to be a a contributing member of our society. We want to step in and help you make a big difference. We also talked to one of our organizations and they said, you know, right now, the training opportunity that is before us is so difficult. And we would love to be able to streamline the training and be able to get a video camera and begin to do some video editing and some shooting so that we can create video opportunities that are online and and provide a realm for people that want to serve to know exactly what to do. We said we would love to be able to take care of that. So by you generously giving $39.95 or whatever it looks like in your realm, you're able to make a difference educationally You're able to make a difference with families that are stepping into the States thinking, oh my goodness, I'm walking into this world completely new, completely different. I don't know the language or the culture. I don't know what I'm doing. We want to be able to make that on-ramp so much easier. You're able to prepare our local nonprofits to make a significant, significant inroad into the community. You see, I love it. I love the fact that we as a church get to partner together. I love the fact that we get as a church get to partner together and say, what can I do to help? You see, when we when we begin to be extravagantly generous, it is when the community on the outside begins to say there's something different about you. And when we begin to give and to give and to give the people on the outside that are looking in saying, you know what? I don't necessarily think I agree with all that Jesus stuff, but there's something about you that I've got to ask questions about. When we begin to be extravagantly generous, it allows us as a church to gain the trust of a community that is becoming increasingly increasingly more skeptical about church. That's why I love Be Rich. Because Be Rich isn't about us making a big name for ourselves. Be Rich is about us doing what Jesus did for us. And it's being extravagantly, extravagantly, generous. So I want to thank you. I want to thank you. In fact, in just a few moments when I say go, it's probably going to be different than any other church service you've been in. I mean, we're not just necessarily going to have a big altar call. And basically here's what's going to happen. When we say you're dismissed, music is going to play because we're at a party, right? It's fun, right? It's exciting. Music's going to play. And when you walk out there, we've got sodas for you. We've got Jones. We've got uh, Dublin Dublin drinks and we've got Coca-Colas. We've got some funky town donuts in the back for you to engage. I mean, I mean, who doesn't like to give money away with sugar just dripping down your cheeks? I mean, it's just beautiful, right? And when you walk out, the cool thing is this is you're going to see balloons in the atrium area and there's going to be green balloons. And and if you came today and you and you would like to give cash, you'd like to give checks to this endeavor. We've got green balloons out there where we would love for you to go and you can write a check. Some of you know what those are. Some of you, I mean, I, I, if, you, if I had to find a checkbook today, I'd be like, 
Can I bill pay it? Like, well, anyway, that's out there. Or if you want to try, if you, if you have a credit card, you'd like to swipe a card. We even will take credit card today because we, we're taking it and we're giving it away. And so what we would like to do is we would like to, to receive as easy as possible. In fact, some of you in here, you might even want to go to berich.org. If you go to berich.org, one of the cool things is, is you can go to North Tarrant Church and you can find an easy way on your cell phone device. In fact, I did it earlier today. You can find an easy way to give immediately right in front of you. But here's the deal. Over the next three weeks, we want to unleash a generosity wave that changes our community and changes our culture. And we are so grateful for the fact that you desire to give, to, to serve, and to love. So ladies and gentlemen, hey, come in real quick. On the count of three, I'm going to say go. And I want you to go and be rich. You ready? One, two, three.